Sneak is a platform for security that started with open source scanning and has expanded into container security, infrastructure as code, and other products. Sneak is a simple product to use, but has hidden complexities that build large data structures to manage and scan code dynamically. In a previous episode, we discussed the core Sneak product. In today's show, we talk about the engineering behind Sneak, and CEO Guy Pojarni joins the show again to talk through the architecture of Sneak and how the company has evolved to serve a variety of use cases. If you want to reach over 250,000 developers monthly, check out Software Engineering Daily sponsorships. You can send us an email, sponsor at softwareengineeringdaily.com to learn more about sponsorship packages. Thanks for listening. Guy, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I want to talk about product expansion to start with. The SNCC core product of vulnerability scanning expanded to a variety of other areas, code vulnerabilities and container management and infrastructure as code. And I wanted to get a sense for how those different categories have been how you face them from a management perspective and and how you've managed to like if you if you found commonalities as you've moved from vertical to vertical yeah for sure so i think it's important to understand the lens through which we look at the world so you know snake is a developer first security company right or a developer security platform we're always starting from the point of saying if i'm a software developer and i am looking to build secure software what's the right solution for me? What's the right company I want to engage with? What's the right tool in question? And so that that ethos was always the goal, even when we launched Sneak, which at the time was just called Sneak, but now it's called Sneak Open Source, the sort of the notion of open source libraries. It, it was already meant to be a series of products because the, the view, and that hasn't changed over time, is that as a developer, you know, you don't really think about every piece of your application entirely in isolation. You are aware your open source libraries are different, are separate to your code, separate to the Docker file you might be editing, separate to you know, the Terraform file or, or Helm chart you might be editing. But fundamentally, you are building your application. And so the view or the sort of the thread that remains and that guide us is if I'm a developer and I want to build a secure application, what do I need to be successful? And so through that lens, you know, we built Snake Open Source and that built a certain set of methodologies around what it means to build a developer-focused security product. And you know, we can dig into them more, but they include things like the fact that while an auditor's job is to find issues and help you prioritize, a developer's job is to fix issues. You know, we we don't really get paid for uh, you know. Uh, maintaining a nice and tidy backlog, you know, you you are expected to actually you know modify and address those issues. The fact that when you tell a developer about a problem and they zoom out, they don't see risk. You know, the security person might you know tell them about a vulnerable library, and they zoom out. They might look at which other applications might be using this library, or which data assets are there. A developer's first question is. Where am I using this library? Like, how does it interact with my application? You know, provide this application context. So there's a bunch of these types of learnings. And so what we've done is we've brought them gradually into these different spaces. We actually started with container and we launched, there's a whole depth first versus breadth first type conversation. We build depth first to adhere to developers. So we we tackled container security from a Docker file container perspective and say, okay, if I'm, if I'm a developer, I'm now being kind of given 
decision power over which operating system will be done. I'm given the responsibility of ensuring that it's patched. What do I need to succeed? And we built an error product. And a lot of it, a lot of the hooks were the same because it's always software. So you want to find out when you're in the VS Code or whatever it is your editor is surrounding and you're editing Dockerfile. If you're making a security mistake, you want something to flag it. When you are checking it into Git, you want something as a part of the automated code review that tells you you're about to add a vulnerable library. When you are told about a vulnerability in a container, you know you want a fixed PR that tells you or, or some, some ability to say, how do I fix this issue? So a lot of those remained. And then some things are unique, like in containers, the notion of registries became more important and the idea of connecting to Kubernetes and seeing what's deployed. When we've gone into code, IDEs grew in importance as compared to maybe what they were for like open source uh, components. Infrastructure as code introduces a lot of, of cloud drift and cloud state. So each of those products kind of had its own core ethos around the developer philosophies around how you build it. It has it had some uh, a fair bit of repetitive technology that we could leverage, and then it had some new aspects that were more unique to it, to its specific uh, purpose. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So when you take something like infrastructure as code, let's talk about infrastructure as code specifically. How do you find the, the frequent misconfigurations or problems that an infrastructure as code deployment might suffer from and keep that vulnerability index updated over time? Yeah, so it, it, it's, good, uh, it's a good question and it's, it has a, a little bit of multiple answers. I'd say, so or for all of these products and infrastructure as code as well, there are two layers. The first layer is application intelligence. It's the ability to, to understand what's going on. And so you need to be able, in the, in the case of uh, infrastructure as code, you know, maybe it's a Terraform file or a CloudFormation, you need to be able to, to parse it, to understand it, to understand the relationship in it, whether it's modules that get included, whether it's indeed it's, uh, its life journey a little bit, you know, when you talk about tracking drift. So all of that we categorize as application intelligence, right? In, in, in open source, it was around building the dependency tree. In code, it's around the program analysis of understanding data flow, taint flow through the application. And then on top of that, you have the security intelligence that manifests differently. We, we end up having kind of two buckets in code and in container, sorry, in SNCC open source and in SNCC container, security intelligence is primarily embodied in the vulnerability database. So we have a whole system, kind of back office system that tries to listen to open source activity, right? Some repo maintainer, uh, some open source project maintainer fixes a vulnerability, says as much in the release notes, and then just that's kind of the end of the journey there. So we try to listen to this sort of ether of uh, of GitHub and we find it as a candidate of, hey, someone said vulnerability or someone said denial of service or whatever it is, gets to an analyst. The analyst decides if it's a real thing or not, like a sneak employee analyst. If it's a real thing, they curate, they clean it up, they build it in the database. And that's what we now seek out as we inspect dependencies in applications that use them or in customer sites. In the case of infrastructure as code and in the case of code, it's more about rules than about a vulnerability database. So it's about which practices do we look for? And there are varieties, you know, there, and, and, and they, there's like a knowledge base of what's secure and what's not secure. And the platform is the one that needs to know that Kubernetes by default runs containers as root. And so 
that is the default. And therefore you have to actually have, have added a line that says run not as root to make it secure or an understanding of the permissions model of some, you know, AWS component and saying, well, what does this mean? So there's a, a curated knowledge base of all these cloud components and Terraform entities and such that are known. And then there's some rules that say, well, if these properties are there or if these combinations of properties are there, then that's insecure. And you prompt that to the user at the relevant times. The points in which you prompt it, they become, again, fairly consistent. You know, when you think about it, you build software, you build it in IDEs. When you commit code and you create pull requests, that's the code review process. So you want to flag that. You know, so IDE is really around preemptive. Code review is really when the helpful team member comes along and tells you, hey, there's a mistake here. You might not want to continue. You can put guardrails and controls that actually say thou shall not pass in the build process. Maybe you have multiple thresholds of them in the build versus the deploy or whatever it is. And then you want to track what's been deployed. So you see you haven't drifted away because someone might go to the AWS console and check a box. So we call that drift and open up because you want to just troubleshoot something. So you just open a port so you can SSH into a machine. Suddenly you turn it into something that's insecure. And so even your infrastructure's code script was secure. Your plan might have configured it securely. The cloud deployment is insecure right now. And so you want to flag that and help you know what to do. That's the rough flow. This, this uh, security intelligence is an evolution, right? Like just like an application intelligence, security intelligence is, uh, is never ending. You, know, you never know everything. And the application intelligence is stack dependent. So we have to, uh, we, we build, I mentioned before, we build depth first. Mostly that manifests in saying we, we support a stack and we really aim to support it well. And then we expand to the other stacks as opposed to kind of skimming the surface and having a shallow understanding of uh of something, but across many stacks right away. There's a focus on speed in a, a security scanning system because if you want to put it in your CI/CD pipeline, for example, then you want to have a really effective, you know, CI/CD can get bottlenecked, and you want it, you want it to be fast. I mean, generally for all, obviously for all code, you want it to be fast, but. How has speed and performance been maintained in Sneak? Like, do you do you have uh, performance testing, or are there is there programming language selection for the code scanning and for the vulnerability scanning that you can speak to? It's a great question. So, performance absolutely matters. I don't know if you uh, if you know this that I was CTO at Akamai before, so I was sort of touting performance for a long time, man. And I know all the business cases, even uh, even on the business front of uh, how 100 milliseconds on the web page can actually affect conversion a fair bit. I think developers are especially sensitive to performance. When you think about performance for us, we, we think there are sort of two maybe levels to it, or maybe even three. The first is the design of the solution. So the design of the solution has to be one that is fast. Probably Sneak Code is the best example of that, literally an order of magnitude faster than the alternatives. We acquired an engine over here in a company called DeepCode, which built this incredible thing. And, and we ruled out like the, the reason that a company drew us, like a lot of it was the speed and accuracy, but a lot of it was really the, uh, the speed and how that applies. That's not just because of some smart implementation. It's the fundamental algorithms of how the program analysis is done. And so over there, uh, that's significant. And that allows for things like you mentioned the build process, but actually the bigger test is in, uh, in the IDE. 
you know, performance when done right affects user behavior. You're, you're in your development environment, you hit save, and you want the squiggly line to sort of show up to tell you that you've made a secure mistake. There's very little latency tolerance in that exercise. You know, it has to be fairly immediate. The build process also can't be slow, but it, it, it's not that sensitive, but you just need to be proportional to the amount of tests that are being run. So a lot of it is that not architecture. You need to think about the Delta testing. You know, for instance, Snake Open Source is able to test uh, a branch fast enough that when we test in a pull request, really what we do is we run two tests. We test the branch that you are about to merge to and the, the new branch you're, you're representing, and we do a diff. And it's because the test is fast enough, and that's the design. The second, so that bit I think we've done very well. The second bit we've hit and miss is the actual implementation. So in Snick, we we opted for a Node.js stack as a whole. We started in the Node.js world. That was the world that we've uh, we've initially only supported. Like Snick's original solution was purely for npm dependencies. As uh, as we've grown dramatically since, so we've chosen Node.js mostly because of the familiarity people with the, with the tool and those surroundings. And when it was light, that was still performant. And we had all sorts of tests that made sure that it stayed performant. As we started using NPM and Node.js for the purpose of scanning non-node applications and things like that, I got to say we strayed of it. And recently we've built far more optimized versions of the CLI and there's more work going on in it. Uh, it comes back a little bit to the architecture. We do monitor and we have tests that constantly test the performance. I'd even split that up further just from the software geek perspective here, which is there's the notion of boot time. How fast are you in a small case? How much overhead does your, say, CLI or, or client provide? Uh, that's the case in which Node.js is not awesome. If you're scanning a small project, then the choice of language makes a big difference. And you know we're pretty uh, seriously working on, on a more uh, native language uh, variant there for speed of boot time and, and injection in various places. And then there's the second aspect, which is when you deal with projects that are elaborate, you know, for instance, for dependencies, there's this, what we call them big trees, you know, these, these applications that might have a thousand, you know, different applications. In those cases, the choice of language makes less of a difference and it's much more algorithmic. It's much more around, you know, how did you encode these and are you holding them in memory and how well do you cache them? So we monitor those. There's a third type of performance, which we've really made a big dent in uh, over the last year, which is one of scale. If you're about to, like as the company grows, demonstrating, uh, you know, showing you 30 vulnerabilities on a page takes a certain amount of time. If I need to show you 30,000, that page might not be very usable at various parts of the application that, to be frank, you know, we didn't originally have those. So what we do is we use a speed curve to monitor a bunch of those web interface performance. We do that all the time. We have increasingly elaborate CI tests that assess the sort of the end-to-end -end performance as well. And look, like I think in any growing or scaling startup, at the beginning, you don't like you try to design for scale, but you don't really, when, when it's an order of magnitude, I think you're almost always prone to have missed stuff. So I think the, the way to address it is not so much by expecting to have avoided all the performance problems, but rather being able to quickly respond so that when a problem occurs, are you on it? You know, Do you know about that problem quickly? For us, we knew about the problem originally more from customer feedback than necessarily monitors. Once we've kind of rallied to fix it, we've introduced um, uh, monitors to ensure that we don't regress. And I think there are always ways to sort of improve, but I think generally that's the right approach to it, which is don't try to 
fully anticipate and design for the extreme, unless that's the core competency you're aiming for, but rather um, just be, be responsive and, and adaptive uh, when those needs occur. And that's, I think the distinction here is important, right? Like the design and the principle and the core competency is that first one that I described, which is the ability to create a good developer experience, a great developer experience in the IDE and the Git and the build that has to be fast. And the adaptive part is the sort of scale of when you're going to support a humongous organization and you aggregate information, how do you work there? Fine, we didn't anticipate all of that and you want to evolve it over time. You talked a little bit there about memory management and I'd like to know more about when a code scan is occurring and or a vulnerability scan is occurring. You're trying to manage that memory footprint. What does cause significant memory consumption? Is it is it analyzing the code or holding do you have to hold like vulnerabilities in memory or are you like I guess give give me a little bit more of a sense of what the runtime actually looks like when you're doing vulnerability scanning. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, look, I'll give you two examples that are very distinct on one of the dependency side and one of the code side. On the dependency side, it really is around the size of the dependency tree that you're holding in memory. And a lot of it was around how do you codify all sorts of repetitions. And so dependencies use dependencies, use dependencies, use dependencies. They come back, they use the same dependencies again. It creates all sorts of cyclical routes that you want to manage. Sometimes you can ignore those cyclical routes. Sometimes you actually need to know about them because you need to apply some, like try to mimic the uh, deduplication logic that the package managers themselves use. So for instance, when they encounter the same library being required, but in different versions, depending on the language, some of them allow that and some of them don't. And so the naive interpretation that we originally had didn't quite fuss about that too much. And that worked well enough for the NPM world in terms of how it held these dependencies in memory as it expanded the graph. As we got into languages like Scala and Gradle, to an extent Go, where everything is a module, these graphs get pretty humongous. And we needed to create a better data model for it. It gets calculated in real time. And also at times, you also have to, there are some flags that you can choose for those edge cases. You have to choose to, to trade off some accuracy for speed, you know, basically saying, well, how, how nested do you want to get to address those? And this gets further demonstrated more on the server side when you talk about remediation paths. So when you say, okay, you're using A that uses B that uses C, and so it's fine. That's an easy tree to, to solve. C is vulnerable. Now you need to find the version of B that gets you to a safe version of C, and then the version of A that gets you to a safe version of B. And so the number of paths there starts getting pretty big. So again, kind of algorithmically, you just choose a little bit of how much that single path that I described right now doesn't sound like a big memory problem. But if you can also get to C through five other journeys through your dependency tree, then suddenly choosing the the best thing that you should do right now to fix a vulnerability gets a little bit more tricky. And so over time, we've had, I think, three iterations of this data model. The first iteration was the naive one that worked pretty well for NPM, for Ruby, for most of Maven. And then we started running into Gradle and Scala and more complex, and we had an evolved version of it that was better, but still kind of had some limits. And then now we have a third version that I think is a... Uh, it's actually been scaling very well. So that's one example. It's really around the dependency graphs and how much do you hold them in memory as you process them. A totally different one 
is in uh, in code. It's also a graph, but it's pretty fascinating. So the way static analysis players typically work, static analysis engines typically work, is that they traverse the code and they try to create a data flow. So they need to do execution flow and data flow, right? The fundamental of static analysis is you're trying to figure out is data flowing from an untrusted source, like a read from a form field, through the code to a, a security sensitive sync, like a database call, without being sanitized in the process. Most static analysis rules fall into that pattern. It's called taint, taint analysis or taint flow analysis. So it's like is tainted information flowing through the application unsanitized and gets all the way to a, a secure sync. And so over there, most, as you can imagine, the, the different paths that you can take through the code, they would explode very, very quickly. You know, you can go through many, many different paths and permutations that data might take. And so typically static analysis has gone through this sort of pruning process. So it would go through and would analyze and would traverse and would build up a graph in memory. And then when it hits certain limits, it would prune the branches that are not as uh, uh, relevant or that it thought was more deemed. And you know, some of them even go as far as putting a memory limit where if you give it more memory, it would be more accurate in, in that path. It's also very slow. The deep code engine takes a big data approach, does something totally different. It takes the whole code and it translates that into a data log format, a key value pair type model that has a whole bunch of, I'm, I'm oversimplifying over here, but conceptually has a whole bunch of like this variable got copied to this variable, right? Or this function was called with this parameters and like just these key value pairs. And they're represented as this flat data log, sort of, you know, like big data style key value uh, list. And then there's iterative work on top of it using increasingly that, that generates new nodes that are increasingly smart. And that's, a far more scalable approach. And what it does is it creates summaries of different files. So it would, it would analyze a file, it would create that data log, it would analyze it, would create summaries of different files, it would do that for other files. And then as it analyzes the full set of data, it would generate insights that are cross file and understand flows. Increasingly, again and again, the systems can get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the same model also allows us to do the same type of analysis to the entirety it's a bit hard to sort of describe the data set, but think about it as like all the code in GitHub and all of its history and use that as a repository to apply machine learning and identify code patterns. So you can give it something like, here are like 10 sources, 10 reads from form fields. Here are 10 syncs, like uh, database calls and the likes. Go fetch, go find me others. You know, go find me others that seem the same. If you're a good software engineer, typically you can throw, they can throw you into a, a piece of code. You don't need to know the APIs. You don't really need to even sometimes know the language to be able to determine that, yeah, I can kind of get that, you know, this is data that's flowing from this form field into this database, right? And identify that is because you see the patterns. So this machine learning engine kind of does that. It encodes this vast amount of code. It runs this machine learning, it identifies these patterns, codifies them in rules, and then applies those onto that data log formats to identify mistakes. So I think over there, there's actually brilliance that a lot of it is about memory management and is about scale and speed that, as I mentioned before, is, is just fundamentally different and just opens up this world of possibilities and usabilities that were just not practical in the previous way uh, that it was done. And do you... in building all those data structures to manage the code analysis, do you actually hit memory footprint issues? Like 
memory consumption issues or does it remain like manageable? Like or what kind of infrastructure are you having to spin up to manage these scans? So and I guess client, I guess it also also uh, you know since since you mentioned the IDE I'd I'd just be curious here because the IDE I'd, I would imagine is is more of a local procedure so I'd yeah, yeah. I'd love to love to know more about that yeah so I think you know generally it's the uh, our products all in all are not terribly demanding on the client side as far as memory uh, as memory goes it was more speed even with the dependency tree explosion. Some of those things, it was more around navigating the graphs, but they could get pretty big now with the different flat modes. So there are edge cases in which you might need a little bit more memory, especially if you're scanning a Java, say a Scala system or, or, or something like that for the dependency analysis. The code analysis is actually even less demanding. On the back office, So and, and definitely the IDE integration isn't, isn't uh, that demanding. Yes, it runs locally, it calculates the graphs locally, and some of the analysis is done locally. Some of it is still done on servers. But the systems on the server side, the ones in real time, are also not terribly beastly. But the big machines are really the ones that do that sort of machine learning setup. So those machines do need to be pretty sizable because they're holding... No matter how efficient it is, if you're holding this incredible repository of uh, of data that is, I don't know the exact number, but I think it's millions of projects and sort of historical context for them and all of that, that's a lot of memory and, and run machine learning on it. So you run some pretty heavy computations on it. And so they all need to be held in memory. So over there, we do use some of the cloud's top machines to consume it. But on the client side, we're not that memory intensive. What's the biggest engineering problem that you've had to solve in the last year? <laughs> so probably making our system extensible. And so Snick has been built up in a microservice environment, but with a few services that weren't that micro and grew up with an, an API first analogy, but some aspects of the API were not as aligned maybe with some others or some were more thought through than others. and Around the end of 2020, we uh, really kind of made it a product goal to make the platform extensible. The platform was API enabled, so you could uh, invoke most actions in Snake through the API and you can consume data from Snake. But it was very hard to interject into the middle of something. If you wanted to integrate Snake into some you know, platform that we didn't support, then you sort of were on your own. You could do it, but you had to do everything yourself. You couldn't just also integrate bringing in the information from that system, but then still work within the SNCC workflows, similarly around authentication mechanisms and all sorts of hooks. And we knew that over time, we want the ecosystem to be able to integrate themselves into SNCC. We, we Customers had all sorts of custom setups that they wanted to plug in. And we see Snake as a platform that provides this sort of you know depth of security and, and application uh, analysis and, and we want people to build on. And so we wanted to make it extensible and we internally had the need for a certain amount of speed. As we had more teams, we needed to become more platform for our own needs as well. And so we actually got a bit of a inorganic help over here. We uh, we first we sort of we, we th- there were sort of a few steps to this journey first. Uh, we knew about this as a technical need internally, but I think defining this product vision of Snick as a platform helped us kind of rally around it and invest in it. And that happened, as I said, towards the end of 2020. 
And then we we actually acquired this amazing team from a company called Manifold, who have previously built GoInstant. They built a platform as a service. They were in Heroku. They had all sorts of great backgrounds. An incredible team that's quite lead, leading a lot right now at Snake. They infused this sort of wealth of distributed system engineering and platform. And they were building a marketplace as a service product. And so they, they introduced this sort of a, a very, very uh, deep knowledge overhead and then also helped us with, with their help and with you know focus from the existing team, we we hired more and kind of devoted more energy to defining an API v3, you know, sort of like a new version of the API into evolving our deployment methodologies to what we've called predictable sneak. It's still a work in progress, you know, to, to make more and more and the entirety of the infrastructure be uh, repeatable and uh, and automated. Uh, where again, much of it was, but enough of it wasn't that it wasn't easy. And then you know extract all sorts of capabilities into the into the mesh that is in between. So uh, this exercise included, in parts, moving, uh, creating a mesh networks. Uh, we use glue in there to you know put all sorts of uh, logic in the edges so the different services don't have to handle it. Creating more repeatability around the infrastructure, and normalizing and streamlining the API, which is a big effort because it includes people and a lot of different functionality and streamlining it and, and lining it and, and choosing all sorts of platforms in the process, and then going through and working with the different teams to actually actually apply this. So we've made huge strides. We launched the Snake Apps platform, which is like GitHub Apps or Slack Apps. It's like a webhook-based integration layer and, and authorization layer in, uh, in Q4. And there, there are still pieces of it that are not done, you know, but I think we have like this uh, great foundation. It's probably the biggest engineering kind of a uh, big architecture challenge that we've had in the company this year. You mentioned Glue. Did you, is that the solo IO? Yeah, yeah we use their, uh, their API gateway. I'm probably not the best person to sort of dive into the details uh, <laughs> of how exactly it's implemented, but uh, we have the capable team. They've done the assessment of it. They've... Uh, They've played with it, worked with them very closely, and are quite happy with what we're uh, what we're running. And just to be clear, that was for networking for what part of the application stack? Well, a little bit sort of simplified here, but it it, it acts as a as a mix of a service mesh and an API gateway. So it allows us to, you know, as, as I mentioned, we created this sort of API v3. So it allowed us to create some connectivity, almost act as like an API middleware, run some changes and things like that in the nodes so the different services can move to the new realm if you will or the new authorization models without necessarily needing to write as much code and then the second thing it allowed us to do is indeed introduce all sorts of authorization checks and and such in between the services so again they don't need to be applied in line i might be slightly misrepresenting over here because i'm not as close to the implementation but logically that's what we set up to do i'd like to talk a little bit about container security so if I'm deploying a vast quantity of containers and some of those containers are being you know, pushed to on a regular basis and some of them are just sitting there just as long-lived services that don't really get updates very often, can you give me an overview for how, what's the best practices or state-of-the-art for how to decide when and how to scan those containers. For sure. Maybe, maybe let's talk about the security risk and then we'll talk about the practices. So the security risks are 
fairly similar to those of operating system of sort of securing a VM or securing a machine. The difference is that now developers need to do it versus IT. So the security risks are primarily you have vulnerable binaries or you have binaries on the system that might have been vulnerable when you deployed it, or maybe over time, new vulnerabilities have been discovered in some curl that you're using or some libopenSSL or something that's a bit less well-known. And you need to know that that has happened and you need to update them. So we'll come back to the uh, remediation or processes in a sec, but that's the primary, the most common risk, unpatched servers, just in container form. And then subsequently, you can have other specific flaws like misconfiguration of things that are installed or misconfiguration of the operating system itself, or you can just be overly permissive. So permissions plays a role in the system, which is not necessarily a vulnerability in its own right, it just might be insecure. So if you're running everything as root on this container, then generally any mistake, any security mistake that happens is amplified. Running it as root is not a vulnerability per se. If the system is very secure, nobody will take advantage of it. But if it is then it's, a, it's just sort of a, a bad defense in depth uh, move to not do it. At the core, it's really these three things. Vulnerable binaries, misconfigurations, and, and permissions are the three security mistakes you can have. I think the primary difference is really the fact that containers are applied as part of the build system, part of software, as opposed to VMs. So in most uh, advanced enough organizations, there, there are, there's a whole element of server management, of IT fleet management, the tracks, which servers are patched, which ones are updated, and which ones are not. And IT security has evolved through the years to get better and better at it. Still, wrangling a lot of these servers is, is a problem, and it still accounts for a lot of breaches, but it's not because there aren't solutions. Those solutions are centrally managed, and they are replaced. Containers, on the other hand, are immutable. There's no point patching them as they're deployed. Even if you did deploy your server management on all of your containers, and then you went ahead and you patched them, those containers are immutable. If you're going to restart the system, the original vulnerable container image is going to be the one pulled and, and running in the first place. So you have to realize, you know, where is the actual core of the problem and fix it there. There are sort of three areas that you need to worry about. I'll start from the right and go left and then kind of evolve from there. On the right is you can check what is actually deployed. Containers offer great APIs, especially if you're on Kubernetes then you actually have the opportunity to ask, what is on my Kubernetes setup? Snyk does it, other solutions do it, which is just plug it into the Kubernetes container, find out with sidecars, there's a variety of, of means to sort of inquire the uh, query, what is deployed or query the cluster from within. And you find out which container images are in there and secure them, remember, and then uh, you need to test those images to see if they are, if they are secure which is a scan that Sneak and others allow you to do. It's a scan of an image file and it would tell you what's vulnerable inside. Uh, remember that not every, like this is important because it's the actual thing that is deployed. So it would find those examples that you mentioned, for instance, of something you've deployed a while ago and just went stale and, and, and grew stale and vulnerable, but also because not everything in your Kubernetes would necessarily come from your registries. You might be using some something you pulled in from a public Docker Hub or things like that, and those might also grow vulnerable. So you have to think about that. A step before that, you can scan your registry and you can see all the things that are published. Are they vulnerable? You know, fundamentally, when you were when you find out something is vulnerable in Kubernetes, you need to update an image, publish it to the registry, and then you're going to pull it from the registry. So the registry is a great place to be constantly on top of at least the latest. So you have to tag your registry images that are actually in production because there's going to be a lot of old registries. 
Sometimes you can actually literally deny access to old or delete old images from the registry, but at the very least you want to tag the ones that are production worthy, the ones that are about to be deployed, and you want you can scan them directly from the registry. That's probably the most common way that people scan it because it's so readily available. Registries have standardized APIs. You, you can just basically point it, give it the right credentials and scan it. So those are very easy scans. And again, they can be monitored over time because the same kosher image today will become vulnerable tomorrow because a new vulnerability is discovered in a, in a binary it uses. And then we get back to sort of the core, which is really around the Docker file and the creation of it. So containers, unlike VMs, get defined oftentimes in software. They have a base image and they have the source code, if you will, of the Docker file, and then you run a build. There are sort of two practices to consider here. One, good base image management. The vast majority of content on a container image comes from the base image, and with it, the vast majority of vulnerabilities come from the base image. And so choosing the right base image as, as slim a base image as you can get, you know, take the smallest base image, the scratch base image, the less you have in there, the less chance you have of having vulnerabilities, but also just constantly updating it. And similarly, a lot of organizations create golden base images that are centrally managed and that the different teams just need to make sure that they, that they consume. And so invest in it. You should also care about the things that might be vulnerable that you're installing in the Docker file. But just statistically speaking, vast majority of your risk comes from your base image, not from the, the Docker file. And it's important that whatever solution you're using to secure separates, tells you if a vulnerability was in the base image or if it was in the core and that it supports base image as well. The second and trickier one is repeatable builds. So you can build Docker files from a specific hash so that when you run the build, you get the same thing again and again and again and again, and that gives you reproducibility, and that's great, but it's also a pain to maintain in many cases. And so the reality is that most people use latest tags or use other major tags, and it means that every time you build, you might be pulling in a different version. I wouldn't go as far as saying that that is good or bad. People have more firm opinions on this than I do. But it's just something to, to remember. Very, very, very often when you find out that an image in the registry is vulnerable and you run a build again without changing any source code, it would fix the problem because you get the new, the new uh, image. So you just, again, you need to understand in the remediation what is the action that is needed. Do you just need to rerun? Do you need to actually modify the base image or is the vulnerability in your Docker file? And it's probably in that order of probability, you know, if you're using one of the common practices of the latest. What I would say is, is probably right is, in many applications, I'd say in most applications, using these non-immutable or these mutable, like latest tags and, and the likes is probably good enough and gives you more convenience. Like it or not, that's what most people do. In security sensitive systems or in ones in which reproducible builds matter more and people use specific hashes and SHAs and I think ensuring that you maintain your own golden images, that you know exactly what's on them and as slim as possible, et cetera. And securing them is a good way to use those, like use those as the base images. And then again, those are the, the edge cases of, it might be vulnerabilities in your own, especially like misconfigurations and things like that oftentimes might happen in your own Docker file code, but you typically just install fewer things in, the, in them. So you know, that's, I guess, a, a nutshell, container security in a nutshell, or uh, securing your images in a nutshell. Container security has a whole element of runtime security, which in my 
view is really endpoint security. Container is just a, you care about runtime security for your VMs and your containers. And there are a few changes, a few differences, uh, like a compromised container, you can just reboot and it would come up clean versus a compromised VM, which if you reboot, it wouldn't. But I think most of the time, you just want the same endpoint security solution for your uh, runtime. Fairly comprehensive answer here. I, uh... <laughs> no, great, great answer. When you think about container security, are there also elements of securing Kubernetes or securing the Kubernetes runtime, like securing, you know, if it's running on Google Kubernetes engine or Amazon container engine, or do you just kind of defer security of those platforms to uh, the platform provider? So, so two levels here again, a Kubernetes configuration absolutely allows you to shoot yourself in the foot, absolutely should be inspected for security mistakes, tends to not be the application developers, but rather the platform developers that deal with that, the DevOps teams. And I would classify that a little bit less in the container security bucket and more in the infrastructure as code bucket, because really you're deploying Kubernetes as infrastructure. There are many security mistakes that you can make and you absolutely should inspect it and secure those. There's a whole world that used to be a thing around sandbox escaping and things like that. Can you break out from the container image itself, you know, from, from the pod to the host of the container engine? There are edge cases, there are things like that, but for the most part, those were, you know, a period of time in which container engines were new and they had a whole bunch of security mistakes that just needed to mature. I think today those engines are are, are really quite secure and that is typically not something you should worry about, especially if you are running on one of the cloud providers managed Kubernetes engine. So you don't really need to worry about someone breaking out of it. Again, there are sort of edge cases for very sensitive systems. You probably still want to assess it to see what memory is shared and things like that. And sometimes you want specific security policies that ensure that certain types of workloads only run on their own dedicated machines and things like that. But it's it's definitely low on should be low on your priority list as a developer. As an example of acute scenario that a security company might have to deal with, can you explain what happened during the log4j vulnerability from the perspective of of sneak like what you had to do to adjust or to remedy the uh, sneak user base? To remedy the sneak user base around Around log for log for J or like about the yeah uh, yeah so so how did you have to re- yeah. from the from the perspective of the company how did you have to respond to the log for J vulnerability yeah the log for shell so log for shell was a pretty amazing point in time it's probably the most severe combination that I've seen of prevalence of a component so how widely used it is log for J is massively widely used practically in every JVM based system and severity. The vulnerability of Log4Shell is not only is it like the fact that it's a remote command execution is bad, it's always bad. But I think what's especially unique about the severity of it is that if you use Log4J for the intended purpose, which is logging user inputs, it's very common. Like you're logging, you know, what has happened? Hey, this input was provided, I'm logging it. Then you are vulnerable to this remote command execution, the worst type of, uh, of uh, vulnerability. And so I think that combination made it truly explosive. And uh, nobody really missed that fact. So for us as a company, we we immediately, so we learned about it, you know, very, very immediately, I think within hours of the vulnerability, kind of even being kind of, you know, having some uh, some noise in the air. 
We've had it in our database. We rolled it out to our uh, to our users. Our tests started uh, accumulating it. We do have a, a period of time in which like a, a cadence in which the projects get retested. So we did some amount of acceleration of that to try and get people who were already using Log4j to be notified about it sooner and really worked kind of through the weekend. This was Thursday night, the vulnerability was disclosed or Thursday Thursday night, I guess, kind of European time or uh, I think. And definitely sort of through Friday, Saturday, Sunday was a ton, a ton, a ton of work. Log4j is one of those libraries that is used, can be consumed in many ways. And so what we ended up doing is providing, so one obvious way is you might explicitly use Log4j as part of your POMXML or one of your libraries. So those were the easiest to detect and people would have already had them in their bombs. Another would be to install it as an operating system dependency. And so we made sure, like our container product generally caught that and alerted on it. There were edge cases where it didn't. And so we added, like quickly added some capabilities to ensure that those scans are there. And then it can also just be something, some binary, some piece of code that you, or, or, or binary that you just put in your system. Uh, and we've actually, when we deal with CC++ and such, we, we have uh, what's called unmanaged code detection, which uses partial fingerprint matching to identify those. And we even package, so for simplicity for users, we created this single command called sneak log for shell, which just tries to identify it in the best way possible for people scanning it on their system. But what has happened really is over the course of these few days, so typically most of the time what customers fuss about is they fuss about, I've got a gazillion vulnerabilities. I want to know about them. I want to know them about them in a the timely fashion. But the thing that's top of mind is which ones should I act on? This was a case in which people wanted to find every single instance of Log4j on their systems. And so a lot of the collaboration with customers was around that. We also have a partnership with Docker. And so we worked, it had a couple of hiccups at the beginning, and then we kind of worked through through those to ensure that Docker and its scans using the Sneak Engine identifies Log4j. And so there was a ton of that type of work. Look, it was amazing to see the security industry rally. I don't think anybody in security slept kind of those uh, so a few days you know, over it. There was a lot of work, a, a ton of value provided. The following week saw two primary iterations of you know people finding flaws in the version that was released. And then again, you know, flaws. None were as severe as the originally disclosed vulnerability, but they were still ones that you had to go to, you know, 4.17.1, 4.17.2, sorry, 2.17. Um, so we were on top of those and identifying customers and working with them. I think it's really interesting. I think it has a lot of repercussions right now in the open source scene. We're seeing a lot more demand from customers caring about the timeliness of our database, caring about, you know, the real-time notifications, which we've, we've sort of always invested in, <laughs> but nobody... Nobody cared, I guess, or like people cared, but they cared about it less. Now, suddenly, I think it's a appreciated, so a bit of an opportunity to shine. If I just sort of do a bit of a shout out, I think maybe the, the piece I loved the most about it from a sneak perspective is just the startup rally. We're a thousand people now, and so we're like a lot of people. And there was just this great rallying, you know, across the customer side and the tech side and DevRel for sort of education and just marketing. There was not a single mention of a, hey, let's use this to make money uh, type opportunity. Everybody was there to say, how do we help customers? How do we help users? How do we help the open source comp- uh, community get over this? Not a single complaint you know, about working on the weekend and all of that. It wasn't some boss that demands it. It's people appreciating the severity of the moment 
and the gravity and the importance of it. So for me, that made me super proud to sort of see the team rally. I'm overhead these days. You know, I uh, <laughs> I helped where I can. I crafted some messages, but the work is not done by me. But I uh, I felt really uh, really great about it. I think we'll see a lot of repercussions in terms of the severity of it. The White has has convened sort of a session or a variety of vendors at the beginning, which we, we sort of contributed to, I think a week or two ago, kind of mid-January, talking about open source security. We've already been sponsoring the OpenSSF, the Open Source Security Foundation, and our, you know, I'm on the board there, and we work on a variety of things. A lot of those were already in the works, but Log4j has really kind of woken a lot of people up to the, uh, to the gravity of the, of the risk involved in this problem of very, very widely used components without proper visibility or investment in ensuring that they are secure. Well, congrats on the speedy response. Guy, thanks so much for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. Always fun here. Happy to be on. Thanks for bringing me on.